0: You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set up to bring you news, interesting topics, and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 394. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co hosts, Onika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. See us talk. Hello. Hey, son, hey, son. All three of us together. Woohoo. Yeah, how did that happen? Well, we shouldn't be surprised at that. I mean, the right thing to do would be to have all three of us every single time. But unfortunately, (laughs) life always gets in the way. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that we don't care. So I want (laughs) our listeners to be sure that we do care. This is why we make it a priority to push an episode out every Mm -hmm. single week. Yeah, that's Uh, why we're still here, guys. (laughs) Not all of us can make it. But yeah, I hope you appreciate it, dear listeners. And I hope that you're content with the content. Um, <laughs> we try I our missed best. you
1: guys. <laughs> we missed and you too.
0: <laughs> so how's, how's Luna? Is she back to true back Much better, track?
1: yeah. She's back not 100% track. yet, but she's, she's good enough. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. Is she in kindergarten yet?
1: Yes, she is.
0: Oh, that's, that's a, been, a good yes, way exactly. to pick up stuff. We
1: already, <laughs> I'm, I, I already said like I want to do almost like the counting thing that prisoners sometimes do on the wall, <laughs> where, where they just ah. like <laughs> do little um, cuts in the wall. I think I want to do that with sicknesses of the first child care year. <laughs> We're already two well, down the drain, so <laughs> we'll see.
0: Well, yeah, well. She only started four weeks for...
1: ago, I should add, so... <laughs>
0: Yeah. be prepared for a bit of a roller coaster in yeah. the next next yeah. three years so yeah it's, it's usually how it happens.
1: <laughs> but hey immune system and so on
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah you need to develop one so yeah you need to be exposed to a couple of things in mm-hmm. order for it to yeah. work yeah <laughs> but you're okay i'm Yourself?
1: okay i'm perfect okay.
0: How, how are you
2: old man <laughs> I, I suppose that's me yes i am so old, uh, but for my age i feel pretty well <laughs>
0: okay that's always good to hear and i i think it it will be stay like that for a long long time <laughs> well i won't be young so i will still be old no and I'm, i still be rude <laughs> and a bit of a dick yeah uh, so um, <laughs> yeah but I'm so I'm just so happy to, to be here with you the, both of you and I can't wait to be in uh, Manchester Manchester yeah. we're heading very close getting close, soon. It's getting close yeah. guys but you know there is one thing that we always look forward to. I mean, apart from the thrill of just being there and enjoying the whole weekend. Mm-hmm. But one thing I usually stands out, and that is the award ceremony of the Occam Awards and the Rusty Razor Awards, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which usually happens on the Saturday. It's a very interesting ceremony. I remember clearly what it was like in 2017. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> when we got... Nominated and we won the Occam Award. We were so surprised. We had no, we had absolutely no cue. No clue as to what we were going to say. It has changed in a way because back then there were several different categories. Now there aren't really. There are two awards, the Occam Awards and the Rusty Razor Awards. So what are those? On the skeptic magazine's website, the nomination form says, the Occam Award is for an individual organization who has done outstanding work to promote critical thinking within the last 12 months. The three major considerations you have to make before you nominate someone is the impact. Is there some kind of a change that they have brought about? The reach. Have they reached a great many people with that impact? And how relevant are they to mm-hmm. critical thinking and skepticism? The Rusty Razor is the other kind of award. It's uh, the one that is for an individual or organization who has been the most prominent promoter of unscientific ideas in the last 12 months. So, obviously, all kinds of pseudoscience and the th- same things, whether they have a great reach. Because the skeptical community usually doesn't want to promote the promoters of pseudoscience. Mm-hmm. So, if if someone is not well known enough, obviously they should not be given an award like that, because that will just bring them more attention. But um, if they are very har- doing some very harmful work, please nominate them. And there is a nominate a, a nomination form. Uh, which we will obviously um, share the link to on our show notes. So uh, feel free to to nominate someone. And uh, I'm pretty sure that we are going to nominate a couple of people. Some of them must have been mentioned on this show because we, we tend to keep an eye out for people who are excellent in science communication and conveying the message of skepticism and critical thinking. As well, as well. I think finding someone to nominate for the Rusty Razor will not be difficult. <laughs>
1: mm mm-hmm. And finding someone to nominate for the Ben Spoon Awards also won't be hard.
0: Australia! They're
1: also open for nominations. Exactly. Australia. And that's basically the only limitation they have. Please only nominate people who do their woo inside Australia. Like, Even if European or American or whoever people appear on Australian television, the Ben Spoon Award is only for local heroes, as they call it. Huh. <laughs> and they're open... We'll put that link into the show notes. And there also are a few past winners. Funnily enough, although I, I am in touch with Australia, I didn't know any of them. <laughs> so well. that's maybe also good news, because that means that maybe not killed anyone yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yes, But their yeah, past winners include Maria Camilla Pau for selling useless COVID vaccination exemption certificates. Or Craig Kelly, a Member of Parliament, who spread misinformation about COVID. And so on and so on. The list goes on. But yeah, that's also open for nominations. And we were lucky enough to be at the ceremony last year. (laughs) So thanks again for that. That was a really cool experience. Um, I'm looking forward to find out who will win it this year.
0: Yeah, and even though Australia is way outside of uh, the reach of Europe, mm-hmm. we do like to talk about stuff going on there because, uh, first of all, there are, lo- there are lots of listeners from Europe, from Australia, mm-hmm. and uh, the other thing is that it's quite international anyway. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it looks like it's uh, award season. Pontus, yes. when is your award due? I mean, not yours personally, but but the,
2: <laughs> that of VOF. Yeah, no, that's always announced around the first week of January. Mm -hmm. Ah, Okay. So so the nominations for that are still open. You can, it's open till 15th of November and you can nominate for, this is for people or organizations that have an impact in Sweden. You don't have Mm -hmm. to be Swedish, but it sort of helps, if you will. And there's two (laughs) prizes. There's the, the positive prize as well, the enlightener of the year award and then the confounder of the year award as I, Tend oh, to yeah. uh, translate it, even though I know that the confounder is not found in any <laughs> dictionary. But I think it sounds funny.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: But if you say it often enough, I think it will make it to the dictionary because mm-hmm. it's uh, uh, to me I, it's an
2: existing word anyway. Uh, well, so, to uh, you uh, and me, maybe, but we don't have that impact when it comes to changing <laughs> the English language, even if we try. Some episodes, we are very creative with this (laughs) language that is not ours. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And Goldene's Bread, the nominations are also still open. So it seems to really be award season.
0: And that's that's in Austria. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I hear there is something weird going on in Germany as well. Like I my Google Translate, I don't I don't know if it did a good job, but it's, <laughs> it, it turned it into skeptical walking cologne. Yes. What's that, Annika? You're you're yes. very close to that.
1: That's something um, that I will hopefully also be part of, and that is on next Sunday, we will meet for a skeptical walk or skeptischer Spaziergang, which oh, was okay. Sounds um, much better. Yeah, which was uh, invented by a friend of mine, Alexandra. She wanted to do it as a contrast program to the COVID walks that we had. <laughs> mm. not, not we, but like we as in skeptics, but us as in Germans. People did these protest walks. She said, oh, like, hey, we should help, also have...
0: Holding up like transparency. Yeah, Yeah, that? because
1: it wasn't allowed to do demonstrations, but it was allowed to go on a walk. Ah. So that's what they did. And after the, everything um, calmed down and the incidence rates went down and it was allowed again, Alexander said, hey, us skeptics should meet. And in the beginning, it was really only walks because it was a bit too dangerous to actually do real meetups with COVID happening and everything. Um, but on Sunday, we're going to a esoteric uh, trade fair in Cologne Ooh. called Spirituality and Healing. Aha. The only downside is that it will cost uh, 12 euro to come get in, like not from us, but for the from, from the trade fair. But yeah, it, it's bound to be very interesting.
0: So, how should we imagine that? So, you are getting together with a bunch of other skeptics. Yes. You're walking in, you're buying the ticket to get in, mm-hmm. and then you're just going to be walking skeptically with a couple of signs held up, or?
1: Maybe not even with signs. Like, uh- okay.
0: Just very sceptical looks on your faces.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now it's like it doesn't hurt to know what the quote unquote other side is doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's that's why we wanna we wanna go there. And we also like we don't necessarily wanna ridicule people there, but we, we just wanna have a look around. But we are not always doing that. A few weeks ago we, we went to an old fort that Napoleon built in Cologne. Okay. So uh, we're not always, it's basically a meet up with other skeptics. And if, if you also get some education out of it, it's nice. But if you don't, then then you go to an esoteric straight.
0: <laughs> what else you could do, Is you could, when is this? Do you have time? 10th,
1: 10th of September. So very close. Oh, you don't have, you don't have much time
0: because what you could do is you could set up a website that sounds like you're, it's an esoteric thing. And (laughs) it's a collection of all kinds of scientifically sound Mm. um, articles about the stuff that's, that's being discussed and promoted at that fair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is what we did with the chemtrail guys.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that, um, that's, um, Informationsdesk like, Homeopathy does that also in, in a way. Okay. Okay. With, with Homeopathy. Yeah. 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 So if you, if you want to meet me, come there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also very short notice. I can also understand everyone who can't come. <laughs>
2: but we'll put the link in the show notes anyway
1: yep Yeah, definitely. do that mm-hmm. do that please thank you <laughs>
2: and it sounds very much
0: like the mind-body spirit that uh, Richard Saunders of the Skeptic Zone uh, mind-body yeah. wallet a lot about. Yeah. the mind-body wallet as he mm-hmm. calls it Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no. so you have your own mind-body wallet good as
1: you <laughs> <Interesting>. do
0: <laughs> alright so um, shall we do the rest of the show I mean we've prepared a couple of things I think let's so Yeah, it. that's yeah. a good idea yeah so let's move on to Twish or this week in Skeptical History. hmm Okay, yeah, I, I think you're both aware, probably even some of our listeners, that uh, I'm a big fan of Italian culture mm. and the language and history and cuisine and everything. And the and food. I, I'll be going back there, yeah, oh, obviously. And I'll be going back there again soon for my work, but I usually do this time of the year. But it probably doesn't come as a surprise to anyone that Italy is one of those countries... Especially the southern part, where religion plays a very important role in people's lives, right? Mm -hmm. It's predominantly Catholic that part of Europe, and still to this day. And everywhere you go, you'll find a saint venerated by the locals as perhaps a patron saint to a specific town or region. And these are all intertwined with weird shit. I mean, crazy kinds and levels of superstition. All kinds of superstition. And of course, Palermo, which is a vibrant and ancient city, the capital of the gorgeous island of Sicily, is no exception. And their patron saint is called Santa Rosalia. Have you heard of Uh, her? No, haven't. No, nope. <laughs> no. Okay, have you been to to Sicily? No, no.
1: Nope.
0: <laughs> you should go. It's beautiful. Getting back to Santa Rosalia, her feast is observed on the fourteenth of July, but then again on the fourth of September, with a, the latter being a big, big pilgrimage to the shrine on something that is a big hill, and it is called Monte Pellegrino. Pellegrino means pilgrim, right? Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Pellegrino, yes, it does. So it does mean pilgrim. So it's because of this 4th of September event of every year that I am talking about Santa Rosalia today on This Week in Skeptical History. Okay, why is her story particularly interesting from a skeptical point of view? Apart from the usual crazy stuff linked to all kinds of saints, the answer lies partly in the fact that her remains – are on display in a very, very elaborately ornated reliquary in one of the chapels of the Cathedral of Palermo, which is a beautiful building, by the way. Everyone should see it. But uh, when I say they are on display, well, they're sort of on display. (laughs) They used to be much more accessible and visible, but after an incident in 1825, they deemed it necessary to be somewhat hidden from the skeptical eye. so why exactly did that happen you might ask Um, people of faith and especially the church usually don't care much about skepticism towards relics do they so they just whatever I believe in this you, you don't have to but in the case of Santa Rosalia her mojo is centered around her remains or what are thought to be her remains they have been used to fend off all kinds of epidemics in Palermo since the first part of the 17th century Because then, in 1624, when a plague was devastating the citizens of Palermo, and here the story has different versions as to how exactly it happened, but somehow the remains of this beautiful 12th century woman of noble origins had been found in a cave, where she's said to have died as a hermit. Well, being a hermit was a big thing, but also her noble origins of Norman background was a big thing back then, especially in Palermo. So then a couple of apparitions happened. (laughs) And after these apparitions, the remains were found and consequently carried around in procession through the city three times in a row. And ta-da! The plague ended. Oh, very good. So... (laughs) That obviously meant that they thought that it was because of the remains being carried around. So, as a result, the remains have been used in the same fashion over and over again ever since. Basically, making Santa Rosalia the most celebrated figure in Palermo and the patron saint of the city and the whole island. Okay, but what happened a couple hundred years later in 1825 that made the clerics hide the relics? It so happened that... A certain William Buckland. I don't know if the name sounds familiar. Well, It doesn't sound very Italian. No, no, no. He was an English geologist and pa- paleontologist. And in fact, one of the most famous ones. Mm-hmm. But he decided to visit Sicily on his honeymoon. Since he was also a theologian who happened to be the dean of Westminster. Ah. Obviously, local priests were proudly and eagerly showing them around with, he- with his wife. Yeah, it was very important to them that they show off what they have and what they're in possession. (laughs) But due to his scientific interests and areas of expertise, he was well-versed in things like, well, comparative anatomy. And when he saw the bones that had been said to belong to Santa Rosalia, Ah. he burst out shouting, Those are the bones of a goat, not of a woman.
2: Oops. Oops. But, but it worked, didn't it anyway? You know, you, you yeah, walk well, the goat around the city a couple of times and then the plague stops.
0: Yeah, it probably didn't even have to be just bones. I mean, I mean well, if you, if you see goats around the island, they tend to be mostly bones. That's a sad thing. So, yeah, you can easily imagine how shocked the priest must have been. Yeah. Uh, to hear all that. And, and they tried arguing that the saint would not permit him to see what only the faithful could discern. And not much later, it got all covered <laughs> and enclosed in a casket. That was it, basically. And the casket was so beautifully ornated that nobody even cares what's inside, mm. except for a couple of skeptics who obviously have never been given access to the remains ever since that incident. But the pilgrimage is still happening every year on the 4th of September, to the cave where the remains of, well, allegedly, Santa Rosalia, but most probably a goat, had been found sometime in 1624. (laughs) So if those are really the bones of a goat, I have to say, no doubt, it's a holy goat. (laughs) By the way, fun fact, a prominent British ecologist, G. Hutchinson, proposed in a 1959 paper that Santa Rosalia should become the patron saint of evolutionary studies (laughs) because he visited one of the pools around the famous cave. And after examining water bugs of the family Koryxidae, he started developing certain evolutionary ideas. So in that article, he praised Santa Rosalia for being the one whose cave is always visited. And near that cave, he discovered a couple of interesting, uh, scientifically interesting specimens. So, <laughs> yeah. So the 4th of September is the pilgrimage day to the place where, well, most probably the remains of a goat had been found. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's
2: great. Hallelujah.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> the Holy Goat. Pesky scientists destroying a very beautiful story. Well, they couldn't
0: destroy it, could they? I mean, no, it I didn't mean, work. But. It's still there. People still believe it. And uh, the biggest event in the year in Palermo is always the 14th of July with the, the large procession. But then on the 4th of September, a lot of people go all the way up to the cave barefoot because that's how you do pilgrimage, right? So it's ah, ridiculous. I don't know. I I just love it. But uh speaking of uh, weird shit in Italy and uh being all Catholic, I hope that Pontus pokes the Pope this time.
2: Yes, well, Frankie may be old. He's not a goat, but he's old. Uh, he's, the, old, yeah, the old goat The old goat uh, He's no longer in his prime But he's still on the road though And uh, as we recall, this He is on a four day visit to Mongolia Which is quite Ooh. a trip uh, No matter what age you are Yeah no yeah. depending on where you are <laughs> Well where you start off Yes <laughs> uh, So Mongolia That's an interesting destination for, for a Pope Because uh, there are very few Catholics in the country Catholicism wasn't even officially allowed until 1992, and Ooh. there are about 1,450 Mongolian Catholics. So that's very specific, uh, and it's also less than 0.05% of the whole population. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And it's the, a massive country. Yeah, well, wow. yes. Geographically, it's big, but there's not too many people. Not very are, highly populated. No, yeah. it's <laughs> a little over 3 million people there and 1,450 Catholics. They have ordained uh, two Catholic priests in the whole country, one okay. of whom doubles and actually triples as a bishop and a cardinal appointed by Frankie a couple of Ooh. years ago.
0: Hmm? Ooh. We have a Mongolian cardinal as well. Yeah, but
2: going there to to meet these people, it's not really necessary. He could have done a Zoom call, right? (laughs) They could all (laughs) have been there. Anyway, uh, religions have a history of being very oppressed in Mongolia uh, during most of the 1900s due to the former communist regime. And this is why Frank's opening speech during this trip was such a baffling affair to me. Because he praised Mongolia's tradition of religious liberty, which is what? What is he talking about? (laughs) I I, I guess nowadays there are religious freedom. 40% of the population do not belong to any religion officially. It could be a a remnant of the communist era, right? Yeah, it it probably is, of course. But it's not a long tradition that it's very religiously liberal. Then he went on to confuse people even more, because he praised the ancient Mongol Empire for allowing conquered lands to keep their existing religions. And he went on to say, quote, The fact that the empire could embrace such distant and varied lands over the centuries bears witness to the remarkable ability of your ancestors, he's talking to the his host there, to acknowledge the outstanding qualities of the peoples present in its immense territory, end quote. Then he said, this model should be valued and reproposed in our own day, end quote. Mm -hmm. so he's calling for the revival of the mongol empire
1: (laughs) so let me get this straight he's talking about the same Genghis khan who a lot of asian people like where you can actually see in their genes nowadays (laughs) that (laughs) a lot of them are still related to him that's how peaceful he was right
2: Right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you know that's a very interesting approach that he had because he killed everyone he could and whoever stayed
2: behind could keep their religion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm coming to that. I'm coming to that. Okay. Uh, okay. Franki also expressed his admiration for the political stability and the fraternity <laughs> and the peace of the Mongol Empire. Uh, uh, he finished by saying, quote... May heaven grant that today, on this earth, devastated by countless conflicts, there be a renewal, respectful of international laws, of the condition of what was once the Pax Mongolica, that is, uh, the absence of conflicts, end quote. (laughs) Uh, Okay, uh, Frankie, short history lesson here. The (laughs) The Mongol Empire was founded by the warlord Genghis Khan, After he seized power over the Mongol tribes, it was not peaceful and it was only the beginning of a terror, uh, really. Uh, There's even a Wikipedia article called, quote, destruction under the Mongol Empire, end quote. (laughs) And from there I read, quote, one estimate is that about 11% of the world's population was killed either during or immediately after the Mongol invasions that's about 38 to 60 million people yeah that's quite that's not peaceful no nope. uh, and also on in there was w- peace after that yeah and yeah. <laughs> uh, they no, probably chopped them dared. Shopped them in different pieces right so a little piece of you and a little piece of me oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, then it says on wikipedia Quote, these events are regarded as some of the deadliest acts of mass killing in human history, end quote. And this is what Frankie <laughs> called, and I repeat his quote, the Pax Mongolica, that is the absence of conflicts, end quote. The level of ignorance there. Yeah, it's yeah, it's unbelievable.
0: unbelievable. It is. It is.
1: I just actually looked that up. A study found that Genghis Khan's DNA is still present in about 16 16 million men alive today Yeah, because he had so many um, children, I want to call it, and also killed so many people and made more children then uh, that, yeah, there are still a lot of people related to him nowadays. Yeah,
2: that explains why I feel so murderous when I think about Frankie sometimes. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But for a long time, it was a little bit debated
0: as to what the extent of the devastation that they caused was. But uh, recently, there have been a couple of uh, articles that discussed it based on recently unearthed evidence. I mean, archaeological evidence. And it really looks like it was as devastating to the part of the world that they had an effect on as we previously thought. Yeah. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, 11%, <laughs> of, the of, the 11% mm-hmm. of the population of the world. 11% of the population of the world was eradicated. And of course, the people in Americas and in Africa were not uh, affected by this. So, for the local impact it must have been devastating. Yeah. Uh, absolutely horrible.
0: So probably this is a result of hiding away in a massive collection of palaces and church buildings and not seeing the world and not understanding the
2: history of the world either. Yeah, so, I, I, thought, I thought Frankie had read some things, uh, but um, I, I don't know. That's a um, good reason to poke the Pope today for. I think so. was so, yes, yeah. Yeah.
1: Definitely wasn't peaceful.
0: No. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for that, Pontus. Thanks a lot. Let's turn to the news.
1: Yeah, I only have a um, short follow-up. There's a new documentary out about Reichsburger, the empire citizens Mm. that are talked about a lot in australia so hi to everyone who listened there (laughs) you will know what i'm (laughs) talking about and they are those who believe that germany is a satellite state of the u.s and is not its own state and they want the empire back nothing to do with star wars sadly (laughs) and yeah there's this new documentary out about reichsburger and about bit of their organization the only thing that I can already, already criticize by just skipping through it but also reading an article about it is that they don't really say how dangerous they can be. They mm-hmm. have a lot of, I would say, ridicule. They, say, they show a lot of extreme people that say like, oh, the evilest, the three pillars of satanism would be teachers, doctors and lawyers have like a lot of people where you just think like uh, okay that's curious that's (laughs) funny-ish but they don't really show how dangerous they can be and how much of a ticking time bomb they they are no but they've. so
2: what we've heard is they've planned and also tried uh, real terrorist attacks
1: mm -hmm, yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and that's that's why i'm like Yes, you can show how funny they are and how weird and how curious everything is. But you should, if you have that long for a documentary and if you have like a long time, if you have more than five minutes, then you should definitely also wake people up in a way of like telling them how dangerous they can be. Mm, But yeah, that's a little bit of a follow up. Anyone who is interested should should watch that documentary. It is interesting. Um, there are a few experts in there that are also very knowledgeable. So yeah, give it a give it a watch if you're interested in the topic. It's in German.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we have to learn German anyway because uh, there are yep. lots of things going on in Germany in the field of skepticism. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, why don't we? All right, a slightly different topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure that very few skeptics question the necessity to do something about climate change, right? Mm. And we mostly focused on reducing our carbon dioxide emissions in order to save lives and try to decelerate the changes we make to our world. Mm -hmm. And we have often discussed this on the show, uh, the number of excess deaths in Europe and around the world related to extreme heat waves, for example. And we are currently at tens of thousands of people dying unnecessarily each year of heat-related illnesses in Europe only. But it definitely doesn't look good when we consider real action driven by climate policies, right? It's as if our leaders didn't understand the science – and the urgency of the situation made very clear by the science. Or if they understand it, it's even worse because then they just don't care. So two researchers, Joshua M. Pierce at Western University in London, Ontario, Canada, and Richard uh, Richard Pancott at the University of Graz in Austria, set out to come up with a different way of quantifying the effect we make on public health. And the effect of not doing fuck all about mitigating climate change. Mm. They reviewed 118 articles in their paper that were all about climate policies and how it should be communicated and what the numbers show in terms of the effect, the societal effect of climate change. And their paper was uh, published in the journal Energies and concluded that even though there are serious quantitative uncertainties embedded in discussing the problem, something that is called The 1,000-ton rule can be applied when estimating the global death toll by the end of the century. I'll come back to that, uh, what the 1,000-ton rule is. But based on their analysis of the current literature, estimations of 100 million people dying by the end of the century are very, very conservative and most likely at least one order of magnitude below what we should actually expect. Hmm. Wow. So the 1000 ton rule is basically that for 1000 tons of carbon dioxide emitted, approximately one person will die by 2100. And that doesn't sound very menacing until you start translating it into actual numbers. So since the carbon budget for an uh, increase of two degrees Celsius, not be exceeded, has already been established and trends have been monitored for decades now. The picture is becoming increasingly clear. With difficulties in growing crops and food in general, poor parts of the world will become even more so, while money will dictate everything and the rich will suffer much less. But if we apply the 1,000-ton rule, we have an estimate of 1 billion people dying by the end of the century, Mm. mostly elderly and poor people, who can then be considered the victims of negligent manslaughter. Yeah. By the rich. So mm-hmm. this is tough language as in a double edged sword, because policymakers probably understand it better, but only if the people are supporting them in taking action. If critics start pointing out the uncertainties and thus rendering the whole message impossible to get through, it will backfire, obviously, and then we're screwed. But they outline the usual points of action that need to be focused on, which is usually what is discussed in international events like COP. But yeah, we are getting back to the fact that the word of science should be heard. Mm. The messages have to be conveyed and understood by all, not only decision makers, but also the general public, because decision makers only understand the voice of the general public, because they are the ones voting for them. That's right. So, so even if
2: there are sometimes we hear about you, you criticize the politicians for not doing enough, for not caring enough, for not being good enough on these things. But I say it's our fault. At least if we live in democratic countries, we we get yeah. the leaders that we elect, and we elect exactly. people. Who uh, are short-sighted? Who think more about immediate money and to be populist.ic And that's what we yeah. vote for, and that's what we that's what we get. I'm sure there are very sensible politicians out there, mm-hmm. but nobody votes for them.
0: Exactly, but that's because probably a lot of people lack that kind of sensibility as well that would be required for them to understand who's the person who's most sensible.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so, um, unfortunately, like it depends I don't see a win.
1: story. And
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But unfortunately, I don't see a way of us surviving if we, if we can't do that. The world needs more skeptic, skepticism, more critical thinking and the realization of who is doing a good thing and who's not. <laughs> Recently, I heard Steve Novella saying that the problem is that we tend to think that the world is run by responsibly thinking adults mm. and it's not. Yeah. No,
1: it's <laughs> run by toddlers. Let's face it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and not even well behaved toddlers like mine
0: <laughs> so i thought this is an important topic because it's a communicational issue
1: mm-hmm.
0: the numbers are not new however this calculation of 1 billion and the estimation of 1 billion by the end of the century this is very shocking
1: it's very no. sobering yeah
0: it is very sobering yeah
1: Yeah, that feels a lot like we should make more children and uh, be optimistic, uh, doesn't it? Uh, No, (laughs) but...
2: (laughs) Okay, um, (laughs) well, if we educate them well enough, yes.
1: If we do, yes, we have to make them the new policymakers.
0: And publish more research.
1: And publish more research, but also take care where you're publishing, because there's actually a pretty interesting um, thing that happened. Derek Woollens who is a researcher, um, found his name on editorial boards of several journals he's never heard of. And I want to repeat that, on editorial boards. (laughs) Yeah. In July, he received an email by Daria Yarosova, who is editor-in-chief of CEJNW, the Central European Journal of Nursing and Midwifery. And she was wondering, because there was a double publication just insignificantly worded differently so he she was wondering about that and contacted this guy who was on the editorial board and he learned that he is on several editorial boards that he never heard of (laughs) Um, he is a professor of synthetic chemistry at the university of saint andrews in scotland and said and i quote this publisher is behaving in an unethical and misleading way Sadly, if this is how the editorial board is convened, it seems unlikely that the published articles can be properly peer reviewed. Yeah, and I can understand that if he doesn't and yet know they that are being he's published <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the article he was contacted about was called "The Effect of Aromatherapy with the Essential Oil of Orange on Pain and Vital Signs of Patients with Fractured Limbs Admitted to the Emergency Ward: A Randomized Clinical Trial." <laughs> And it was published in De Pharma Chemica, or Chemica, in 2017. It was also published in the aforementioned Central European Journal of Nursing and Midwifery. Uh-huh. And the <laughs> Indian Journal of Palliative Care.
2: <laughs> oh, swell.
1: So, coming around. And
2: the whole premise is if you break a leg, they have allegedly tested the benefits of sniffing on oranges.
1: Mm-hmm. Ah. He, he also said <laughs> yeah. he never heard of the, the journal. Like, not even of the editorial board, he never heard of the article, but he even never heard of the journal. And he said, he's actually really angry about that. He said, I quote again, I have never given my permission for you to make me editor of this journal. This is damaging my academic reputation. End quote. Indeed so. And yeah, you, you can see that this is really not okay. You can also see how much that is not peer review. Sadly, mm-hmm. they also they didn't reply to an email from Retraction Watch, where uh, that they, they talked about this. This makes us wonder, of course, on the quality of peer review in several journals.
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah.
1: If that's how they, how they yeah, yeah. make their editorial are just boards. hijacking
2: <laughs> names that sound yeah. prestigious, and they just yeah. use those names mm-hmm. to to enhance their yeah. own prestige.
1: Exactly. If oh, you hear wow. St Andrews in Scotland, you're like, oh yeah, that's cool.
2: Yeah. Pretty good golf course, I hear. Yeah,
1: neither good science nor ethically okay.
0: Yeah. It's a very prestigious university, the yeah. University of St. Andrews. Yeah. hmm mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Beautiful place.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, there's a news item from Stockholm that reminded me that we are still waiting for the next big measles epidemic, and I'm sure it will come.
1: Mm-hmm. Not happily waiting, though. <laughs> no,
2: I'm, uh, no, but it's just a matter of time, I'm sure. Anxiously. Uh, yeah.
1: Three mm-hmm. new
2: measles cases were reported from the Swedish capital over the last few weeks. The health authorities say that these cases were all, quote-unquote, imported. That is, that the patients were arriving from abroad and had not contracted this disease in, in Sweden. But it's bad enough. Uh, they were All of these three patients were described as unvaccinated or without full protection. So um vaccination against measles is again and again, we've said it so many times, very, very important. Mm-hmm. And they're now tracking the spread in Stockholm, trying to find out who these people met uh, or engaged with and if there's potentially an epidemic coming up there. We know and we can repeat the fact that measles is extremely infectious and to achieve so-called herd immunity, more than 95% of a community must be vaccinated. These new cases are very alarming. And I went to the ECDC and WHO online on their resources to check what the latest information is. There was a time several years ago where we did this almost on a weekly basis, but then we got um, distracted, to say the least, by other <laughs> other diseases. Anyway, according to the ECDC, their monthly reporting of measles, they looked at July. That's the latest that they had published. Only 17 out of the 29 European countries that they have available statistics for had no measles cases in July. So the disease is present and active in about half of the European countries. And we can add UK and likely Ukraine as well to that number. Most uh, countries reported just single-digit cases, so that's sort of okay. But Romania ha- had around 100, and Austria, about 10. And this is just in one month. Mm-hmm. So, as we've said before many times, measles kill people. Not all the time, but enough that it matters. According to WHO, there were an estimated 128,000 measles-related deaths globally in 2021 128 thousand deaths wow this is mostly among unvaccinated or undervaccinated mm-hmm. children under the age of five years so it's mostly a problem for children and mostly for those who are not vaccinated they also estimated that measles vaccinations had averted 56 million deaths between the year 2000 and 2021 So vaccination saves (laughs) millions of lives. Exactly. In 2022, they say about 83% of the world's children received one dose of measles vaccine. Remember, it should be two doses and it should be 95%, not 83%. This is the lowest rate since 2008. And uh, yeah, so unfortunately, vaccination rates... Statistics for Europe is not really available since 2018. I guess it's hard to collect it. I don't know, but that's the latest number that they have. In 2018, only five countries in the EU or EEA area were on or above the required 95%. That was Portugal, Hungary, Slovakia, Iceland and Croatia. Those countries are okay. The rest of us are not living up to the 95% vaccination rate. And this number, 2018, this is, we should remember, before the pandemic and the Russian mm-hmm. war against Ukraine. I'm sure things are worse now. Yeah. Yeah. So we're still waiting for the big epidemic, measles epidemic, and uh, it seems very likely that it's coming sooner or later.
1: And the thing is, not the ones who instigate anti-vax will suffer from that. It will mostly be either their children or children that just couldn't be vaccinated.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Good
1: news. Um, Not. Not. Definitely unhappy news. And I've got news that made me actually grin a bit, I have to confess.
2: Okay. Good news then.
1: And I think we need a bit of a news item that makes me grin. (laughs) Because Anglican priests actually agree on the fact that Britain is not longer a Christian country.
0: <laughs> oh.
1: Here's my Okay, Giggle. then um, get
0: out of the House
2: of Lords, please. Yes, yep. what happened to that one?
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly.
2: Bishops out, yeah. I think was the slogan. <laughs> yes, yes. Yep. Yep. That would be good. Yep.
1: Yep. There was a poll carried out among Anglican clergymen, and they mm-hmm. agree that Britain was historically a Christian country, but is not anymore. Almost two-thirds of the priests said that it can be called Christian, but only historically, not currently. Okay. The majority of priests say that the Church of England should conduct same-sex weddings. Okay. Good. <laughs> and a further majority also thought that the church should drop its opposition to premarital sex. Also Okay, <laughs> as I said, I had to I had to giggle a bit about that, but it's also not something we can applaud because there ha- was a lot of trouble in the UK. They had this uh, blasphemy laws. They have religious discrimination in skate schools, uh, sorry, not skate schools, in state schools and in religious schools. They have sometimes failure to recognize marriages that haven't been done under religion. And as we already said, they have the automatic seats for the bishops in the House of Lords. Mm. So if even the clergy people say that Britain is not a Christian country, then how about just separating the whole thing? Right. (laughs) So how about change the House of Lords? Uh, How about change education in a way and give priority to human rights and not to religious doctrine?
2: Yeah, and you have to appoint a new head of the Anglican church than they have today because it's Charles, Charles the Third. Yep. King Charles mm. is head of the church. So as mm-hmm. long as you have that, those two roles mixed together.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm, not good. No. But that brings us to the end of the news segment, which means we should find out who has been really wrong or really
2: right lately. Yes, and surprisingly, I will be Annika for this week.
1: Hello, Annika. Your voice is a bit lower than normal. <laughs> yes,
2: and I'll take this segment this week because we have an award that will go to a Swedish person.
1: Mm-hmm. Maria
2: Gunther is a brilliant Swedish science journalist, and uh, she also received the Swedish Skeptics Enlightener of the Year Award in 2016 mm-hmm. together with uh, a colleague. On the 2nd of September, Maria Gunther wrote a great article in Dn, which is uh, one of the big Swedish uh, daily newspapers. And, she, and the headline was, quote, The fear of radiation is more dangerous than the actual radiation, end quote. And this is a quote from the renowned expert in molecular pathology, Professor Jerry Thomas, now retired from Imperial College London. Maria Gunter's article uh, was prompted by the news that Japan will dump radioactive water from Fukushima into Ah, the sea. And when you hear that, that sounds really dangerous and, and crazy and alarming. This water contains tritium, which is a radioactive isotope of hydrogen. But Gunter shows how we need to put things in perspective. Naturally produced tritium falls down from the sky all the time. Only in Japan, they receive 10 times more tritium naturally per year than they are now going to release into the sea. The radiation from tritium is so-called low-energy beta radiation, which only reaches 6 millimeters in air and 6 thousandths of a millimeter in water. So it's very limited in range. It can cause harm if it enters the body through food and drink. And this means that some sea creatures will ingest a very, very small amount of radioactive tritium. But again, it's a question of perspective. Gunther goes on to quote the organization called Science Media Center, who says that a lifetime consumption of seafood caught within a few kilometers of the Japanese release will result in a radiation dose equivalent to one bite of a banana. Because bananas (laughs) contain a small amount of the radioactive substance potassium-40. So this is what we're talking about. If you eat seafood your whole life from creatures that have been exposed to this water that will be released, then it's just as dangerous as taking one bite of one banana. So excellent work there by uh, Maria Gunther and... Mm. For her continued efforts to explain real science to the general public, she receives this week's prize for being really right.
1: Well-deserved. (laughs) Well-deserved.
2: It's uh, fascinating how
0: little we tend to understand the basic concept of toxicology, which is that it all comes down to the concentration Because whether something is toxic, whether something is harmful, well, different materials differ based on how much you have to consume. So this is when we talk about hazards, Mm self-hazards in terms of uh, food supplements and food items and all that. That's the other problem, the problem that we usually have a hardship understanding, the difference between hazard and risk. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. right. So, yeah, it can be a hazard, but the risk is very low when it's a very low concentration mm-hmm. of the material that that you are exposed to. It's all so about the dose. The,
1: it's all about the yeah, dose. Yeah, it's exactly. All in, the dose. in German, we say, die Dosis macht das Gift which yeah. translates to the dose makes the poison. <laughs> yeah, I think that's
0: it's It's, not, it's not a uh, the German, it could be a German saying, but it comes from Paracelsus who lived in Austria yes, yes. and uh, was a, a, a medieval doctor and mm-hmm. philosopher. And uh, he is widely considered the father of toxicology. So mm-hmm. this is the basic concept of toxicology.
1: Yeah. So it's not German mehr culpa no, my bad. <laughs> well, no, I mean it
0: could, be, could mean, be said in German Austrian, first, yeah. Austrian, but it was it wasn't said in German first. I think it was said in it was
1: Latin probably. <laughs>
0: Latin mm. first.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Ah. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for that, Pontus. But I believe we do have a word of the week as well.
2: Yes, we actually have two words of Ooh. the week. Ooh. Nice.
1: Yeah, yeah. So
2: they are what connected. What a week. <laughs> they are they are connected and they are Norwegian. So I'll do my best fake Norwegian accent <laughs> here. The first word is postander, and I'm trying to do that as a Norwegian would do it. I'm, I'm not sure. Good I'm, enough for us. Postander. <laughs> so that's spelled P A S T A N D E R, and the first A there has a circle above it, so it's actually a separate. Uh, it's counted as a separate letter. So postander. And uh, the next one is bevis. So okay. do you have any idea I've intentionally hmm. not put the translation in the script here so you can't so cheat. F- do you do you have any do you want to make a guess Postander and bevis?
1: The first one could be something like bystander. Maybe? Oh yeah. yeah. Good <laughs> guess.
2: Not right, but bevis? good guess.
0: Good Does guess. bevis have something to do with
2: the drinking? Well, no, (laughs) I don't think so. No, no. Okay, so postander means claims, claims. Oh, and Mm. bevis. So it's a plural. It's a it's a plural. It's plural. It's plural. plural Bevis is probably
1: related to bevis then.
2: Yeah, and what does bevis mean?
1: Bevis is like the proof. Exactly.
2: Exactly. Ah. So. (laughs) <laughs> so, if I take on, you know, if, if Carl Sagan would have been born in Norway, he would have said, Extraordinære <laughs> 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 extraordinary postander, kräver extraordinäre bevis. Extraordinary claims de- I love that. <laughs> demand extraordinary evidence.
1: I love that. I yeah. love
2: it. Yeah. Say it again. Say it again. Extraordinary postander, kräver extraordinäre bevis. Wow. So
1: cool. I love
2: that. (laughs) We'll put that whole sentence in the show notes so that our (laughs) listeners can practice. (laughs) I love it. Yep. Okay. Right. That's cool. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thanks a lot. Was it your own research? It was my own research and my own pronunciation. So if we have (laughs) anyone in Norway who wants to complain (laughs) about my pronunciation, please send in your own pronunciation to info at theesp.eu, and we will play that little snippet uh, next week.
0: Yeah. And, um, of course, we are expecting a lot of other words of the week or mm-hmm. who's quacking items. So please send us your favorite words related to skepticism and science and pseudoscience or the most horrible quack in your country with preferably a link to them talking about weird shit. Yeah. So, um, we- yeah. So uh, we-, we would love to hear recordings of. Of, yes. of this. Yeah. So we can play them on the show. Preferably with uh, English subtitles or an explanation by you, the listener. Well, if <laughs> there's no explanation, <laughs> we can't <Yeah>. do it. <laughs> we, <laughs> we just make it up then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're not going to just run something just <laughs> just because someone says, ah, oh, it's weird. Uh, yeah. So it needs to be possible to confirm. Yep. That brings us to the end of the show, which is always marked by a quote. So, Annika, have we got one?
1: Yes. This week's quote is by Edward Teller, or in Hungarian, I will butcher that, Teller Ede?
0: Teller Ede, yeah.
1: Teller Ede, who was, as you might have already guessed now, a Hungarian-American theoretical physicist known colloquially as the father of the hydrogen bomb and born 1908, died 2003. And he said something really smart, or he said several really smart things, but... One quote I want to give you today is, and I quote, we must learn to live with contradictions because they lead to deeper and more effective understanding. End quote. And he said that in Science and Morality in 1998.
0: Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, he was quite aware towards the end of his life that he was mm-hmm. like a hateful figure for coming up with the idea of the, uh, not the idea, but but pushing for the H-bomb. And uh, his character is very interestingly depicted in mm-hmm. in the in the Barbie movie. No, 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 that's that's not the one. <laughs> the Oppenheimer movie. Mm.
1: Yeah. I think
0: it's I think it's a brilliant movie and uh, mm. he was the guy with the weirdly large eyebrows. <laughs> in real life or in the movie? No, 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 both. Both oh. actually. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. It was funny.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to watch it. I still didn't watch uh, Oppenheimer, so I'm excited to watch
0: that. No, me neither. To watch oh, that. Guys, be prepared for a very intense ride. I mean, it's uh, emotionally speaking, it's it's very, very intense. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the depiction of certain characters and certain scientists is very interesting and how they find different characters that we would expect to be much more of a weightful character. Like they ended up a, a little bit weightless because I'm pretty sure it's just the storytelling part is so difficult. Like you see Richard, F- um, not Wiseman. <laughs> Richard Feynman you see Richard Feynman in two separate scenes but he has one sentence and then he does like a conga and that's it so it's it's, and that's Richard Feynman okay no more spoilers please I want to see Richard Feynman do
2: a conga without knowing it you will (laughs) <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry about that. But it's
0: it's really interesting how because it it was so full of great minds and the greatest minds of the time, the Manhattan Project. It's so it's only obvious that you cannot give the same weight to every one of them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we can we can still stay ex- excited for that then.
0: <laughs> yeah, be excited about that and mm-hmm. and do watch the movie. I do recommend it to everyone, even though it's long, you don't notice how long it is until you finish and you see that. Oh my God, three hours have passed. Okay, but that really concludes our show this week. I'd like to thank both of you, Anika and Pontus. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Many, many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye.
1: Tschüss. Hello.
0: We start. I don't know how you can't believe. (laughs) Uh, Sorry. I thought it was going to be much funnier, but it didn't sound like
2: that. So, um... The Pax Magnolia... Magnolia. Pax (laughs) Mongolica it's all about the dose by the dose by the no true by the
1: dose. <laughs> all about the dose
2: by the dose by the dose what's happening
1: <laughs> I don't know um but I won't tell you haha <laughs> bye no you won't um, tell her <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly oh that was smooth um